as we gather this morning, that you're speaking to us through your word, that um, you're not so far off um, that you're uninterested or unconcerned with us, but that you love us deeply. We thank you for each person here. We thank you for the gathered church. We thank you, God, that in Christ we have a common faith and a common hope. And God, I pray, Lord, that this, mer- this morning that anyone who might not know Christ um, in his saving power uh, would come to know him this morning through your word. I pray, Lord, that whatever it is that I say that might be incorrect or confusing would be quickly forgotten, and whatever it is that is faithful to your word would be remembered and applied. In Jesus' name, amen. It's so good to be with you all this morning, and I just want to encourage you guys to remember our brother Jim Rodericks. Um, He's still in the hospital, and let's uh, just be diligent to pray for him, that God heals him. Um, and just blesses him and his family that we see him back here soon, just healthy. So let's just uh, try to remember that in your prayers and in your thoughts. Um, We we would, uh, I'm sure him and his family would love love to know that many people in his church are praying for him. But we approach the the opening verses of this uh, letter that is written by Peter. Um, You know that when Jesus began his ministry, which was only a, a few short years that Jesus actually ser- did a, had a ministry. Um, Jesus began his, uh, when, when he began it, he immediately started attracting followers, um, people who would call themselves disciples or followers of Christ. The very first followers of Christ were originally disciples of John the Baptist. Did you know this? So John the Baptist preceded the ministry of Christ and developed a following, um, followers of John the Baptist. And when Jesus came along, the disciples of John the Baptist left him and went to Jesus. We read in the Gospel of John in the New Testament, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, a whole other sermon could be prepared about the the humility and the courage of John the Baptist to allow people that were part of his congregation to leave his congregation to follow Jesus Christ. He said, he must increase, I must decrease, decrease, I am not the Christ. He knew who he was and who he wasn't. But anyway, that's another sermon for another time. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. One of those disciples, we learn, is Andrew. And after Andrew began to follow Jesus, it's kind of funny, the story in the Gospel of John, they start following Jesus, and I, I kind of fill in the blanks sometimes in my head because they're following him. They, they leave John, and they start following Christ. And eventually, it says Jesus um, looks to them and says, what do you want? <laughs> and I just kind of interpret that not as a very deep question, like, what? What are you doing? What do you want? And um, what, what they wanted was Christ. So Andrew and, uh, goes back to his family, and he tells his brother, you need to meet who I believe is the Messiah. So Jesus met, meets Andrew's brother. Andrew brings his brother to Jesus, and Jesus meet, meets Andrew's brother and says these words to him. You are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. Changes his name, like he's his dad or something. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. 
So Peter meets him for the first time and has his name changed by Christ. And Peter's life and Andrew's life is never the same. This is the first introduction that we have to the Apostle Peter. And we'd learn a lot more about Peter later on in the Gospels as we continue to read the Gospels and we read Acts and even his letters in the New Testament. We learn a little bit about his peculiar character, his boldness, and his courage. Um, in particular, we learn in the Gospel that he's the one, if you recall, that's, that when, sees, when he sees Jesus walking on the water, he says, I'd like to do that too. That looks really cool. So he says, Jesus, can I walk on the water with you? And he says, come on out. And he walks on the water. Peter is the one um, that after the, cruci- um, after the crucifixion, he pulled a Forrest Gump. Did you know this? He's out on a, after Jesus is crucified, put in the tomb. Him and the apostles say, let's go fishing. Why not? It's always a good day to fish. So <clears throat> he says, let's go fishing. They go out fishing, and he's on the boat. <clears throat> and, he, and off in the distance, he sees the resurrected Christ walking on the shore. So rather than docking the boat and getting out, he pulls a Forrest Gump, jumps out into the water with all his clothes on and swims to his feet because he loved him dearly. That's Peter. He was considered uh, all throughout the New Testament and church history um, first among equals, among the 12, their captain of sorts, and he became the leader, the head, or the lead pastor, if you would, the bishop of the, the first Jerusalem church. So he, this man, Peter, is the one that's writing to us. His commitment is deep. <clears throat> it says, Jesus said in John chapter 6, after all these people decided we're leaving Jesus because the cost of discipleship and following him is just too high, Jesus says, you do not want to leave too, do you? He asks the twelve. Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, what a man. What a faithful man. What a courageous man. If that's all we read about him, that's what we're left with. But Peter is also the one that lobbed off, what was it, Malcolm's ear? <clears throat> Malchus, Malchus's ear. Maybe I have subconsciously want Malcolm's ear to get cut off. Um, he lobbed off. He, so this is the guy that also, we, we see like this kind of stellar, stellar character in the Christian faith, but he's the one that lobs off Malchus's ear. He, he, he's debating with the other disciples about who's, who's going to be the greatest in the eternal city. Right? Nice guy. He, he also, by the way, he walked on the water, great, but he's also the one that started sinking because he looked away from Christ and lacked faith. Oh, and by the way, this is probably the worst of all, he denied that he even knew Christ three times at his crucifixion because of the fear of man. So Peter was a follower of Jesus in progress, like all of us. Isn't that true? If you name the name of Jesus Christ, can't you just kind of recall throughout your faith history, times where you, you did the right thing and you knew what to say and you had faith, and then other times it's like the complete opposite. Like you didn't have any faith at all. So like, like Peter, we're, we're disciples in progress as well. Peter is the one that Jesus announces these sobering and hard words. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. 
And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Satan has promised to, or has asked to sift you as wheat. What a confusing and bewildering thing. So many questions are invited. Why does Satan want to do this to us? Satan is asking permission. That means that God could have stopped it. Confusing this idea of suffering. Simon Peter was a sifted man. You know what sifting is? I know we have some farmers in, in, in the room, so maybe our farmers know. But sifting is the process of plucking off heads of grain and sifting out the wheat from it, tearing it apart. It's as if Satan's goal was to pick Peter to pieces. Satan has desired to tear you limb from limb. That's how we could translate that and understand it today. Satan has desired to tear you limb from limb through loss, through trial, through persecution, to bring him to ruin was his goal. And Jesus' response, Peter, <laughs> I'll pray for you. <laughs> right, maybe that wasn't his tone, but that's what he says. Jesus, Jesus says, I'll pray for you. You see, we, we interpret that like that, that we add that tone of voice to Christ. I'll, I'll pray for you. You're in trouble. But isn't it quite the opposite? The prayers of Christ, the intervention of Jesus, the hero, the conqueror, is on our side. In spite of the trial, in spite of the suffering, he is there, interceding. With the, the Bible says that the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Someone is out there in control that loves you and is leading you. There's, few other, uh, there's only two other characters in Scripture that I'm aware of. You guys, you guys are good Bible scholars, so you let me know if I'm wrong. But there's two other characters in the Bible that I'm aware of where Satan himself actually requests to sift them like wheat. It's Job and Joseph. There's the only people I know of where Satan makes a specific request to go after a person, to test them. <clears throat> so here is this character, Peter, at the end of the crosshairs of Satan himself. And Peter, at the end of his life, did you know this, was crucified on a cross upside down. According to church history, he told his executioners he did not wish to be crucified the same way that his Lord was, so that he asked them to turn him inverted, because he wasn't worthy to die and suffer in the same way that Christ was. Friends, to all the lost and suffering, to all the bleeding and confused, and to all the desperate and depressed, what we have this morning is the opening, the open, the opening memoirs of a sifted man. This is for you. 2,000 years later, Peter, the sifted, speaks to us in our pain and our confusion and equips us with power and hope. <clears throat> so this morning, we're going to begin to examine the words of this man, this sifted man, Peter, as we examine how the Christian life prepares us for trauma. Now, on the surface, um, it might seem to you that the next 10 to 12 weeks are going to be quite miserable. <laughs> Rehearsing, perhaps, the miseries of life. Maybe thinking about things that you, you'd hope to forget. 
a betrayal, a divorce, a loss, a death, a sickness. Whatever it might be, fill in the blank. A mom and dad that wasn't there for you. They were abusive. Things that we, we long to hope forget, we might have to remember in the next 10 to 12 weeks. And maybe refeel a little bit of the pain that is still there from those events of our lives. But friends, I want to give you hope in this because the Bible's antidote to this is filled with wonderful joy. The power that Scripture gives us to endure, to move past, to see God's hand in it, is going to fill us with life so that even if you've never experienced these kind of horrible traumas in your life, it will equip, it, it will equip you to the day where perhaps you will experience those traumas or it will give you joy even in the light loads that you might be bearing currently and hope. There is a reason for rejoicing in spite of the reality of our pain. So in these first few verses, we open up with what's a typical greeting in the New Testament, a New Testament letter. And it's pregnant with issues about to be borne out in the letter that follows. What we have in the first few verses of Peter is really an introduction to something that he's going to continue to explain to us. How to understand faith and how that faith informs trials in our life and the grief of our hearts that we bear from those trials. Dealing with the heartbreak of situations which should never have happened to begin with. And we all know the... How, we all know that when when these horrifying events happen in our life, there's something that just tells us intuitively that such should not be. So how do we deal with the heartbreak of situations which should have never happened in the first place? And there's, there's the rub of it right there. These two short verses, I think, are hints of pain and hope. Pain and hope that are part of the Christian experience in Christ. And in here we're going to see two things in particular this morning. The problem and the promise. Nice and easy for you. The problem and the promise. Scripturally and psychologically, physical and emotional suffering is the result of personal experience trauma. Okay? I'll say that again. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, is the result of a personal or perhaps corporate experienced trauma trauma. You go through some kind of traumatic event and the result is suffering. You emotionally or physically begin to suffer, oftentimes both. A traumatic event happens and the consequence is an internal emotional or external physical suffering. So for example, we're in a car accident and we're left paralyzed, incapacitated. We have a, a, a physical suffering, a physical consequence hits our body because of this car accident. The trauma of the accident leaves us physically incapacitated. 18 years ago, I was uh, an enthusiastic 20-year-old Christian, right? Um, and I loved my church. I loved Jesus. I loved the people around me. And something happened at my church 18 years ago that completely emotionally train-wrecked me. It split in two. I observed two dear men that I looked up to and loved, who were once friends, that to me at least seemed became enemies. And I felt like I needed to pick a side. That's where I was. And it felt like my whole world just kind of came crashing down. It seems kind of minor, maybe 
kind of unaware of why something like that would sting. But for me, it did. It was awful. And that trauma produced in me an emotional suffering. Friends, in these two verses, I think that what we can observe are the kinds of trauma that we often endure. And it's important, I think, for us to note them, to see how we can answer them and understand them and filter filter them through God's promises. The three kinds of trauma that I think that we can endure as believers, and and not just as believers in Christ, but as human beings with a heartbeat, these have to do with love, safety, and significance. Love, safety, and significance. We can go through a traumatic event and which results, results in personal suffering around these kind of three situations, love, safety, and significance. Let's look at these because it's important to understand what God says about them and what he promises to us. So let's look at the love trauma. <clears throat> How many people know that love is dramatic, right? Love has to do with our need to be in some kind of mutually affirm- affirming relationship whether it's with a friend or with a parent, a spouse or a child. I'm not just talking about romantic love. I'm talking about the need that we have for personal exchanged affection. And that can happen between a teacher and a student. That can happen between friends or parents and children. And, and most commonly, we often hope that that will happen one day between a, one spouse and another in a more intimate and romantic way. Affirmation has to do with our inner need to be looked at and loved. I love that person. I love you. For someone to be pleased with me, to love me, is at the heart of our created being. You see, we were created to be loved. So affirmation has to do with satisfying that inner need to be loved to be in, to be accepted, to be in and not out. You see? There's a deep emotional need that we have to be looked on with affection and be part of some kind of relational exchange of love and mutual affection. Trauma happens in this category when we experience certain things in life, things like divorce. Our spouse leaves us, commits adultery. Or perhaps we're children dealing with parents that are getting divorced. And it feels as if we're losing a a person that should be loving us, committed to us, staying with us, is now leaving. So divorce, a married person or when parents of children divorce. Maybe young people have abusive parents and are demeaned by them verbally. When they're supposed to be encouraged, supposed to be complimented. You know nothing but a mom or a dad who constantly insults you and demeans you. You see, what you're experiencing is, the tra- uh, is a love trauma. And what, you, what, what will be the consequence is suffering and grief. You're going to bear the weight of that consequence. It's impossible to avoid. Because such things should not be. Parents should love their children, right? We all know that. But that's not always the case. Because we live in a fallen and broken world. So children have to deal with the fact that sometimes... Their mom and dad, or their mom or just their dad, they're not a good person. And as a child, you have no way to understand what's going on. You think it's your fault. You think there's something about you that's unlovely or unattractive. You bear the suffering, and to add insult to injury, you also bear the guilt. So guilt exacerbates 
this love trauma, when you start to feel as if you've done something wrong, that you're to blame for this rejection. Sometimes we are to blame for the rejection. Sometimes a husband is abusive, a husband commits adultery, or vice versa, and our spouse leaves us. When they desperately wanted to be in a relationship of mutual love, they, they couldn't handle the abuse any longer of that. So sometimes that's, that rejection is our fault. We do bear the consequence of the guilt of that situation and need to take responsibility for it. Whatever the case may be, though, guilt as a consequence exacerbates the problem of a love trauma, of a loss, of a rejection. The traumatic experience becomes my fault. I am unlovable. There's something wrong with me. That's how we begin to feel, even if it's, that has nothing to do with it, and it's entirely not your fault, and you didn't do anything to deserve it. We start to feel like that. It's unavoidable. The affirmation that we need and crave has not only been denied us, but that rejection is perceived as being our fault. And when we experience this love trauma, whether we're guilty or innocent, it seems to me that either way, even the innocent still think they deserve the rejection. Did you hear that? So you start to believe emotionally, I deserved this. I'm guilty of something. Sometimes you are, most oftentimes you're not though, but you still feel that way. And we believe that something must be objectionable about me. I'm reminded of, if you've seen the the movie Gladiator, I don't know if you've seen this, Um, it came out, I don't know, 15 years ago-ish, and it was with Russell Crowe, and there's this maniac of uh, of an emperor, right? His name is Commodus. And at the very beginning of the movie, he says to his father, you wrote to me once, listing the four chief virtues, wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And as I read the lists, I knew I had none of them. But I have other virtues, Father, but none of my virtues are on your list. Even then, it seemed to me as if you didn't want me as your son. You see, the the sense of rejection, when we should be receiving love and affirmation, is traumatic. That trauma can produce a suffering that will also produce a reaction in us Sometimes that will make us out of control because we're seeking to fix it, to heal it. We enter into maybe numerous relationships, sexual scenarios, drugs or alcohol, or maybe not so dramatic a thing, we overwork, underwork. (laughs) How many underworkers? You don't have to raise your hand. We underwork, overwork, something to... Feel like just to escape the sense that I am not lovable. Am I wanted as a son, a friend, a spouse? You see, love traumas produce a suffering in us that, de- that, that births in us a deep insecurity. <clears throat> Loss in this area leaves us with a sense of rejection. There's something about us that is simply unlovely. But the second kind of trauma has to do with safety, or we could call it security. It has to do with physical things in life that you need that you're getting denied. 
It has to do perhaps with the loss of life, a death in the family. Health, your health is declining. You're losing materials like money or a home, food. Where am I going to get my food from? Are we starving? Do we have clothes to wear? Things like this. Safety isn't quite as much in reality an issue in, the, in, in a certain respect in the environment that we live in, the culture we live in. It, it, we tend to have things provided for us in our culture where we're not the poorest of the poor in our society. But it's still an issue on various different levels for the poor, for, uh, for unavoidable tragedies of life that come upon us like a wave, a death in the family, a sickness, a loss of a job. Our security, our safety is questioned. It's put into question. You might be displaced, and we see this all, around, all, all across the world, though it's not common to us, but people being displaced from their country or their home because of their war or because of war or famine or the economy. <clears throat> it's the battered wife also, though, whose life is, uh, is frequently physically threatened. The alcoholic or abusive mom or dad. It, th these sorts of traumas leave us with a sense of feeling as if the world is not safe. See, we're in physical trouble, but now emotionally we're affected to start believing that we're not safe. We're in trouble. Something bad is going to happen to me. So that's the result of the trauma. That's the, that's the emotional reaction. That's the, oftentimes the suffering that you bear is that anxiety about another loss that you could potentially experience. So these sorts of traumas leave us sensing as if the world is not safe and that we're bound to lose something important to us. It's just not going to work out. I've seen it not work out too many times in my life, and that's just how we feel now. We're expecting the worst to happen. Now, this may also affect, you know, a safety thing might affect... Uh, a love trauma as well. They might kind of be intermingled. They might be both in the same. But this has a particular nuance. It's not necessarily a trauma that is a trauma of rejection, but of loss. You lost something. An enemy has ruined your life, ruined your reputation, seeks to ruin you more. This is all over the book of Psalms, by the way. We see both of these. The question of love, is God listening? Does he care about me? Does anyone love me? That's the love trauma. Then the safety one. I'm in trouble. Where am I going to find my next meal? My enemy is hunting me. He's, he seeks my life. Right? There's all of these different ways in which we can experience different traumas. It's, it's the sort of tra trauma that produces fear that you're, not, you're never going to have enough money. And when you do, you might lose it to something, some tragedy, right? that we're going to get sick, someone else is going to get sick, it's going to happen again. We look back at the sufferings and tragedies of lives prior, and we think it's, it's bound to happen again. And it leaves us in a condition of emotional insecurity and fear. Okay. The ways in which we have lost before are bound to happen again. And these sorts of traumas leave us feeling as if we're not safe. Finally, there is the trauma of significance, the, the significance trauma. This is more than simply being loved or affirmed or applauded. This is not about um, loss of life or anything like this. 
It has to do with purpose. It has to do with importance. Why do I walk this earth? Why does my life even matter? Why does it count? Again, sometimes these are related to the other traumas that we saw before when you go through them. But am I important is a question it might ask. You're proving yourself. You're proving your self-worth. You're proving that your life actually matters or counts for something. It's unique in that it's the search for significance of the search for importance and the search for meaning. Trauma that can aggravate this might include things like failing a medical exam. You, you, wanna, you, you have a high esteem for, for medical doctors and you, you're working all your life to become a doctor because you highly esteem that career. And you, that's what to you is a significant life move and you can't do it. I'm not smart enough. I didn't pass the test. So you fail the exam. We attach meaning and importance to this, and we fail, so we go through a traumatic experience of having to feel as if our lives don't matter anymore. They're not important. So we're traumatized with issues of identity and significance. Who am I if I'm not this or that? Nothing else really matters. So it might include performing as an exemplary musician or artist, yet just being mediocre at best. As hard as you try and as much as you practice, there's always just a lot of people way better than you and me, right? We never get hired by the, the places that we esteem. So we go through these traumas of significance. Am I important? Does my life count? Did I live it well? We're trying to justify our existence. That's what this is about. See, we go through these things in life, and oftentimes in life what happens is a trial comes, and it aggravates one of these areas of need that you have in your life. You lose a love. You're rejected. You're left when you should have been loved and cherished and kept. Something about your life becomes insecure, you lose a job or money or life or health. Safety. It gets aggro. You start to become insecure in all these areas. You, you, don't, you don't get the job. That might, that might aggravate your safety issue. But it also, uh, significance. What's my purpose now? All I do is sit home every day. My life doesn't matter. See, love, safety, significance. When these things happen to us, we go through emotional pain, suffering. And oftentimes that suffering includes things like aggravation, anger, anxiety, fear. There's also this emotional spectrum that kind of washes over us. So what do we do about this? Friends, I believe that right in the first two verses of, the, of, of 1 Peter, we see all of these three, these three things addressed. And we're, we are given an answer from God about, he satis, about how he satisfies all three things in your life. That's the promise. There is a promise from God for you. That even when we experience the, the loss of love, the loss of safety, and the loss of significance in this life, we have not lost it in Christ entirely. We actually have it completely 
and fully. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how in these two verses, God answers these traumas that come, come into our lives inevitably. These tragedies are met face to face in these first two verses and answered. And a promise is given for people who are in Christ and gives them full satisfaction in all these areas of life. God promises us that in Christ, we will all receive full satisfaction in all of these areas of life, no matter what we've lost in this life. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. You say, where is that in all of this? Well, first of all, who loves us? The Father. We have a Father, you see. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Right in this, this first verse, we see our need of love being satisfied in God as our Father. Well, how about safety? Is not our Father, are not, we're, are not our fathers, our human fathers, given the responsibility of keeping us safe? So friends, if we have a loving Father in heaven, isn't the conclusion, shouldn't the conclusion be that we are safe in his care? He loves us, we're safe, and we matter. He loves us, we're safe, and we matter. Why do we matter? Well, because he's our Father. You see, the title Father gives us all three. It gives us all three. It gives us love, it gives us safety, and it gives us meaning, it gives us purpose. Why? Because we, in Christ, are children of the divine King. And if we're children of the divine king, that means everything that he gets, we get. Everything that he is, he will give to us. The Bible says in, in, when Jesus prays, give, give them the glory that you have given to me, Heavenly Father. Glory is your destiny as a child of God. You see, right in the first verse, we see, we see all three needs that we've experienced aggravation and loss and suffering over, satisfied in God's fatherly affection for us. You see, friends, you have a good father in Christ. A good father in Christ. Let's look at these one by one so we can understand them more fully. Number one, the love and, af love and affirmation is pronounced by the father on every believer in Jesus Christ through Christ by grace. God's love, unchanging, unfailing love, is given to you and never taken away from you because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now let's unpack this a little more because this is important. The letter opens with Simon greeting his audience as an apostle. Did you notice that? Simon or Peter, an apostle? An apostle in the Bible is a person with certain credentials, right? They were with Jesus. They're one of the 11 that were with Jesus. They weren't just disciples. They were apostles. The word apostle means to be sent out by God himself. So they're followers of Jesus, but they were also the 11 apostles, the direct disciples of Jesus Christ, minus Judas, 
um, because he betrayed him. The apostles were to convey, this, this was their job. The apostles were given the job to communicate to the church the promises and commands of God, to describe who God was and how to apply his word and truth to their lives. They were personally commissioned by Jesus Christ to do this, to go into the ends of the world and to make disciples of men. So they speak with divine authority. They speak as if God is speaking. And we, in Paul's second letter after this one, excuse me, Peter's, it says, no promise of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy ne- never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, that's a description of what we have of the Bible. The Bible is not the opinion of a man recording something about what he thinks about life and God. The Bible is God communicating himself to us. And the apostle, the prophet, is the instrument by which God communicates. See? So biblically, Peter is saying, he's telling us, when he says Peter, an apostle, he's saying, listen up, friends, because God is revealing something to you. Now, why is that important? Why is that significant? Because how many people know in this room that when you experience trauma and loss and confusion and heartbreak, sometimes all you want is someone to put their arm around you and speak love to you. I love you. Someone loves you. And I'm going to make this right. Sometimes that's all we want. And friends, that's what we have in this. We have a God who speaks who is not disinterested or unconcerned with your pain or your problems. He's there. And not only is he there, he speaks. He's speaking to us. God speaking to us through Peter, about to speak to us about the things that matter most to us in this world. Someone better than Peter is opening his holy mouth and instructing us when we are most confused in the most difficult trials of life. It says in Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. You have a God that knows what your loss is like, that went through the pain with you, that hung on a cross for it. The God who speaks to us in our pain He is beside us. We wonder in our confusion, and he speaks. We're alone, and he's with us. We're broken, and we find a healer. You see, that's who is speaking right now to us. If we ever dare to fret that God is unconcerned. How many people have thought this in in this room? God is unconcerned with the events of my life. Where is he? If we ever think that or feel that, all we need to do is read these few words. Peter, an apostle of Christ. You see, because what they mean is that God is speaking to you. He is not silent. Fathers are not silent. Fathers love. You see, not my dad. Okay, but you know that he should have been that, like that, right? I'm talking about what our father should be like, not, not, 
not with the ones that were given to us at times. Fathers are present. Fathers take care of us. Fathers love us. Fathers dry our tears when we cry them, right? And that's the good father that expresses himself to you in this moment in the problem of your pain. We're not, a, we're not alone. God is speaking. And friends, he's not just speaking to just anyone. He takes action to actually do something to keep us and to love us and to protect us. He's not just speaking empty, blank words. He elects us, it says. He elects the people scattered into the ends of the world. That word scattered implies a suffering, a tragedy, right? They're not home. They're being scattered and persecuted. But he elects them. He chooses them by his will, and he sets them apart. That's the word sancti- what the word sanctify means. He plucks them out of their traumatic experiences of life, and he chooses them. He says, you're mine now. You were once an enemy, but now you're a friend. You see, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I don't just make you, in an unrighteous way, part of my family, because what, is, what, what did we read later? He sanctified us by the sprinkling of blood. You see, we were far away from him. We were in a far country. But by his grace, he elected us by forgiving us of our sins through Christ. You see, he cleaned us. He took away the guilt. You say, it's my fault my husband or my wife left me. That might be true, friend. It really might be true. But did you know that in Christ, that you are forgiven of all your guilt and you are loved absolutely? And it can't be lost by your works. That's what it means in Scripture that you're saved by grace through faith. It is the unmerited favor of God. God, in his own choice, in the freedom of his own will, decided to save us. People who did not deserve us deserve it. It says this later on in the letter. We'll get to this a little bit more later. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Father has forgiven you. The, the, which means you are in, you are included, you are loved, you are not outside, you're inside. You're his child, you're his daughter, you're his son by grace through faith. Pile up all the wicked things that you think deserve your separation. It was put on Christ for you and not on you. And you are declared righteous, holy, lovely, beautiful. You see, you are loved. And that love is assured and promised and will never leave. And the reason for it is because Jesus died for all the unlovely parts of us. They're gone. They're forgiven. Scripture unpopularly marks a distinction in this world between those who are God's people and those who are not. People who have received the mercy, right? And the God of all grace who called you to his glory after you have suffered a little while, oh, I'm reading the wrong verse, excuse me. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people. Once you were not a people, now you are. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received the mercy. Scripture presents this unpopular dichotomy of people who are not God's people and those who are. Those who, are, who have not received mercy or been forgiven of their sin and those who have been forgiven. And the, the solution to the problem of those, for those who are not forgiven, for those who, have, who are not part of his people, not part of the people of God, 
is his electing grace. He elects to save you, and your response is by grace through faith. You believe, you trust, so that even if you're out, even if you're not receiving mercy, at any moment you can trust in Christ that he died for you, and you will be in. Your sins will be gone, and you'll be included in the family of God. The Bible says, whosoever will may come. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or how much money you have or don't have. Whoever you are, you may come. Saved by the foreknowledge of God the Father. God, and that's what this means. God in eternity past knew that we would be his enemy because of sin and decided anyway to love us and rescue us. That's God's electing grace. Not only does he free us of our guilt and sin, but he, he frees us from all the tragedies of life. All the losses and all the consequence of that in our suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. You see, we are going to suffer a little while. The Bible promises that. But oh, after, that wonderful little word, after you suffer a little while, you will be made strong and firm. That's the hope of the Christian life. The Father elects to rescue sinners from their sin and from their present suffering. He does this by his free, unmerited grace. He's overlooked our sin by his grace, paid for it himself, adopted us as his children. You got a bad dad? We'll get adopted into the eternal family. God the Father is the best dad. Come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. He's adopted us as his children, secured us to this hope, and this he's done for us for free. You don't need to show up with a nickel. He's paid for it all. You don't have to perform for it. You don't got to dance pretty. You don't got to be the best athlete. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You see, God loves you because he loves you. It's as simple as that. He's not more proud of the prettier girl two rows behind you. Because for some reason she knows how to put on lipstick better. Right? That's not how it works, friends. So you know what? You don't need to put it on. You don't need to iron your clothes, right? You, you, you come as you are, and God loves you in spite of you. Isn't that great? You say, well, won't that produce in me a certain measure of kind of like apathy and who cares and I'm just going to do what I want? But well, no, because you remember what we read? He has saved us for obedience. You see, what happens, the miracle that happens in your life when you come to know that you're forgiven and included is that you don't want to do that anymore. Your life becomes a worship to God. And it becomes pleasing to do. You see? So we don't have to perform for it. Underneath, I think, though, this good news is some hard news. Our situation was once of estrangement. Isn't that the implication? Being outside, not inside. And being outside includes all the tragedies common to that separation. 
But in all that hard and heavy news, that for the Christian, all of these difficult things need to first pass through God's fatherly care for you. Suffering is not a cosmic accident. It's not a burp in the space-time continuum. Right? Whatever that is. It's not without purpose, and it's not without direction. If God is father of his people, we have an assurance that his directing plan, even in tragedy, will result in graciousness and redemption. What was dead will live again. That's the promise of the cross and the resurrection. What has died will live again. Whatever has died in you emotionally will live again in Christ. That's the assurance. And he doesn't do this unjustly, like I said. He doesn't just wave a magic wand and say your sins are forgiven. He satisfies his righteousness by dying for the tragedies of life, the dysfunctions of this world himself, on a cross, all of the injustices that result in the emotional sufferings that we experience, he pays for on the cross. In our place, he does this. So his forgiveness is not just a wish. It's not just a hope. It's actual. It's real. Because the debt has been paid by the sanctifying work of the the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ is what reconciles us to our Father who is delighted to love us. Isn't that great? The way in which God makes us right with him and restores the the relational love is first by paying for that sin. That's what sprinkled with his blood means. All the anger of God is satisfied at the death of Christ as our substitute. How many people have played basketball? throughout their lives, or maybe as a youngster. That's it, too? Come on, there's more. Yeah, you guys don't like raising your hands. You know, how many people don't like raising their hands? There's a lot more. Well, I played basketball um, as, a, as a youngster, and, in high, and I think a little bit in high school. And let me just tell you right now, I was terrible. I was not a good basketball player. So I delighted in the sub when I was, <laughs> right? Like, usually I was the sub. Because I, they did not start me. But in basketball, you know, when, when all, pl- all the players are generally good, the sub goes in because the players are tired. They need some fresh legs. They do this in hockey too, right? So the subs go in, and you need some fresh legs. right? So imagine yourself like on this platform, unable to perform, unable to play the game, and a substitute comes in and plays it for you on your behalf. And the game is won. You see, friends, that's what Christianity is. We lost the game. And suffering is the consequence. But Jesus comes in and he wins the game. We couldn't pick up the ball. We couldn't make the shot. So he says, go sit down. I'm going to play for you. And he wins. You see, Jesus in scripture is called our substitute. There's a theological term called substitutionary atonement. It means that the anger of God for sin is satisfied as on when it was put on Christ in our place. So what we owed was paid for us by Jesus. He's our substitute. 
Does that make sense? It's put on Christ. Stop paying. You'll never be able to. It's always a loser's game. You don't have enough money in your pocket, friends. So stop paying and trust in Christ. Look to him, the substitute. And what you'll find is not only is God our Father, which assures, of his, assures us of his divine love, it also promises us his care, his security, safety. Peter's, Peter's writing to exiles. Exiles are not a, generally in a good position. There's usually some kind of war or some, some kind of persecution, so they start to scatter all over the place in all these different countries. And we saw that, that list of places that we see, which was actually about modern-day Turkey. All over Turkey, Peter is writing to exiled Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. So they're not in a good place. They're looked at as kind of funky, weirdos. What do you believe? We believe in a lot of gods. You believe in one? Christians were called atheists. One guy said Christians were enemies of humanity. Isn't that interesting? doesn't really feel a whole lot different today, does it, at times? right? Um, because of this confusion, people look at us at times with... Having, if you've had a Christian faith for any amount of time, they kind of, you're, this is so strange. I thought this existed like 500 years ago. So you're like a relic from the past. That, that it just seems odd, to be, odd at best, infuriating at worst. So sometimes we're looked at with confusion, and other times Christians are looked at with a lot of anger. And this, this was their situation. They're exiles, foreigners, strange to people around them, displaced um, from what is familiar and what is comfortable. These people are not home. They're somewhere else. They're doubly exiled, though. Not only are they not home, but they're exiled in humanity because they possess a faith that is not common to the rest of the world. The earth is not their home, the Bible says. We are sojourners. We're called to love the world around us, but ultimately Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So we're exiles, not only, uh, these people are not only out of their home country, but this world itself, earth, is an exile. Exiles throughout history and even today are in various types of physical trouble, aren't they? Food, water, work, all sorts of things, health care that we, we find ourselves kind of lacking when you're exiled. Spiritual exiles, as, excuse me, as spiritual exiles, our good Father is always good and is leading us to a glorious end. Death is not the end anymore. So we might experience physical suffering, physical loss, but that is not the end. We live in a world with windows. There's something past it. Our good Father is always good and is leading us to a glorious end. Death is not the end. Life, so to speak, is the, nine mo- the ninth month. Our death is almost the ninth month of our mother's pregnancy. We're about to be birthed into eternity, into our eternal home. So that for the, the Christian, we can say, death, where is your sting? It's a shadow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because death can't touch this Christian. Death was put on Christ. So you don't even need to fear death. So while we experience physical loss, we're promised 
the hope of a fatherly care that God will provide to us throughout our lives and in the next life. Okay? We can say, death, where is your sting? The bee stung Jesus. Isn't that great? The bee stung Christ. So that means it's just a little bug that we can pet now. There's nothing to fear. Once a bee stings you, you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. The suffering and loss we experience in this life is real. It's hard. But friends, it's momentary. Because we're going to be resurrected. It's going to be over. The tears are going to be dried. The hope of joy and life is secured for us. Our safety is secured for us, promised to us by our good Father. And what does this give grant us too in addition as we close? Is it getting late? Oh my goodness, Kyle, land the plane. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I need a clock right there. I can't see that thing. Okay. <laughs> It gives us great significance. I said this already. We're not just plumbers. We're not just lawyers. We're not just children. We're not just seniors. We're divine heirs, children of God. We're better than the president. We're better than the lawyer, right? That's what you have. And friends, all these it does, the titles don't matter anymore because you are offspring of the king. There's no greater thing. I don't care how good, play, good you play the piano. There's nothing more important than that. Come to Christ. Get your significance. That frees you to, be, to, to, to have a joyful experience in whatever it is that you pick in this life, whether it be a musician, a lawyer, a doctor. Now you're free. Now you're not crushed by that position anymore. You're free to be great in it. Friends, in Christ, the Father has forgiven us of sin, chose, chosen us. He's going to gather us from our exile, and he's destined us for glory. That's what he's done for us. Peter finishes this great greeting with these words, grace and peace to you, to you in abundance. Grace, the undeserved favor given to us freely as God's gift, takes our injury, the injury of our sin upon himself, and he pronounces on us, upon repentance and faith, his unchanging love, his protection, and great significance. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord for the patience of a congregation listening to a long-winded preacher. God, thank you. Oh, that you've promised us these things. That even though we've lost love, we've gained it in Christ. Even though we've lost security, you've given it back to us in, the, in your fatherly care. And God, we're crowned with glory. We matter. We're important. Thank you for this, God. We pray, Lord, that we would take all of our trials and all of our burdens and cast them on you, and remember what you've done for us and who you've made us. In Jesus' name, amen.